You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written... I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. 
and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they may be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. We are thankful for what we have heard. We pray now, as we have just prayed, as we were singing, that this truth might be something that for some of us might teach us. For some of us might warn us, for others it might console. We pray that this feast of your word, as we consider the work of Christ on our behalf, we pray that this feast might feed our souls. We pray that you would accomplish all of your will, draw now, convict, give life, and fill, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, one of the pastors here, I'd love to get to know you after the service if I haven't. I think I wrote the other day that I, on Friday, I think I was beginning to write this, that I thought that we had made it out of like the random 11 o'clock at night fireworks going off in the neighborhood, but then last night it went, it just kept going. Uh, I'd like to think that I wasn't as obliviously inconsiderate when I was a teenager, but I'm pretty sure that's not the case pretty sure Nando was over at my house a couple times in high school and we kept neighbors up very late. Uh, so you just take it in stride here as an adult. But there's no better way to celebrate our freedom from tyranny than hot dogs and explosions, right? Uh, as Americans, we hate the idea of kings and queens. When their authority is reined in and these individuals are interesting, we'll watch a Netflix series about them, perhaps. But the idea of having to actually live under a monarch for as long as they choose to live. It just is, that sounds horrible. And actually kind of boring, right? One reason why we like our system of government here is at least we get a change every four or eight years. A little false sense of optimism that things are actually gonna get better. But we, I think, intuitively know as Americans that absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the founding fathers were intensely skeptical of the selfishness of human nature and they designed a system of, government, of governance that would be intentionally clunky, very inefficient for things to get done. But here's the thing, if you have a good king, monarchy is actually the best form of government. 
How do I know this? Well, that's, that's the form of government that God instituted for his people. And it's the kind of government that Jesus sets for himself and for his kingdom. The problem is we've just never had another king like him. And so monarchy tends to go poorly. Tonight, though, we finally, after 18 chapters in the gospel according to John, we get to the king's coronation. It's an entirely different coronation, though, that anyone could have ever expected because here's a king unlike any other king in history and a kingdom unlike any other kingdom. But make no mistake here, with the events of chapter 19, Jesus is reigning as king. He is ruling over creation. He's not just an unlucky victim in this thing. In chapter 10, he said, no one takes my life from me. He is not a victim here, but I lay it down of my own accord. So tonight, we'll see this difficult chapter. I don't know if you were feeling the same as you heard Stephanie reading, just the emotional weight of all of this. This is difficult, but we'll see Jesus' kingship and his coronation played out under three headings. A humble king, a suffering king, and a buried king. Oh, and real quickly, before we get into John's uh, account of this together, several of you have been asking what's coming next after we get done with this book. Uh, so I'm really excited as I'm beginning to read and prepare for, the, for uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll spend about eight weeks in that much-needed book. Uh, it's needed for all times and for all people, but especially for we Americans. So go ahead and start reading through that a few times in preparation for a few weeks from now. Let's get to this, though, now in John 19. A humble king. Last week, we saw Jesus' closest friends. We saw his uh, entire nation and, in fact, the entire world reject Jesus as king. A terrorist threat was released instead of Jesus, Barabbas. A terrorist threat, he's released so that Jesus, a non-military threat, not, not a, a violent threat to Rome at all, uh, he's kept in custody. He's taken in. Now we get into chapter 19, and he's taken in, and he's beaten by these Roman soldiers. The Gospel of Mark records a beating after Jesus' final condemnation. So this is probably the first of two separate floggings, whippings, that Jesus experiences on this morning. There are three levels of Roman beatings, Roman floggings. The first level is likely one for petty thieves and criminals. It's not meant to endanger their life, but just really teach them a painful lesson. This is probably the one that he experiences here at the beginning of chapter 19. The one to come that we read about in Mark's gospel is meant to prepare him for execution, to set the stage for his death. But after he's, after, in this flogging here, the, the, after he's flogged, the soldiers find a purple robe. They, have, they put together this makeshift crown of thorns to jab down in his head. And like last week, the irony in this chapter drips about as freely as the blood on his brow. Finally, the high king of heaven, who has been ignored and marginalized for his entire life and his entire teaching ministry in this book, is finally recognized as king. He is crowned before the nation. But these soldiers are punching him in the face and mocking him as they cry out, Hail, King of the Jews. These soldiers likely don't have a ton of anger or spite towards Jesus specifically. They may have heard of him before this day, but they probably don't have anything against him. 
They're maybe pointing all of their frustration with these insubordinate and unruly Jews on this man, this representative of the Jews. If this is the best they've got to offer, and look how weak he is, then let us show our might. Let us show how strong we are and how weak they are. And of course, they mock him and they mock Israel, but they're right. He is the Jewish king, isn't he? If they had eyes to see as they're punching him and mocking him, they would see that he's the Roman king as well. As well. Hail king of the universe, they ought to be crying out with their face in the dirt. But this is a humble king unlike any other. The Roman king at this time, the Caesar Tiberius, he was known for having officials or nobles throughout his empire executed, even if it was found out that they removed an image of him from their own house. Executed for this kind of subtle disrespect. And yet here is the high king of heaven being punched and spat upon and verbally mocked. And he just takes it. This is a humble and unexpected king. But even after releasing Barabbas in the last chapter, after beating him at the beginning of this chapter, Pilate still isn't convinced that Jesus ought to die. He brings him back out in front of the crowd and then he says to the crowd in verses 4 and 5, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Pilate is hoping that the bloody pulpy, pathetic mess of a human being standing in front of them will satisfy them. This guy is like seriously the one that you're getting all worked out up about? Seriously, this one? Look how weak and bloody he is. Why are you concerned about him? Behold this man. Can we just go home now? But of course, everyone here misses the irony. Yes, behold the man and worship him, the humble and beaten high king of heaven. But they don't understand, they don't see the irony, and they certainly do not worship. They're not even satisfy him, they yell out, crucify him. To Pilate then sarcastically tells them to just go ahead and crucify him yourselves if you're so intent on doing this, knowing full well that these Jews don't have the authority to execute criminals. But he just can't do it himself. He's not convinced that there's anything to warrant an execution. He's not guilty of anything. So then the Jews appeal to their own laws. They say, look, they argue, he, he's not just an insurrectionist. He's breaking our own religious laws of blasphemy, blasphemy by making himself out to be the son of God. Now this gets to Pilate. Perhaps he's been thinking that Jesus is just perhaps a bit more of a mild-mannered Barabbas. He really is an insurrectionist. He just doesn't talk as much. A humble guy, sure, but one who actually really wants to be king over his home country, but John tells us in verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, that the, the, the Jews are upset that he is making himself out to be the son of God, he was even more afraid. Even if he doesn't believe that Jesus is the son of the Jewish God, I don't think he's just afraid of the crowd. I think he's afraid of what's happening here. Maybe he realizes more clearly that this is actually a religious issue going on. There was perhaps all sorts of religious superstition swirling around in Pilate now at this point he's, as he's afraid of perhaps he might execute a holy man. So he brings Jesus back inside and he asks him, where are you from? Like what, what is going on here? But Jesus gives him no answer. So in verse 10, Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? 
Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? He's practically begging Jesus to just give him just a tiny reason to let him go. And yet Jesus just stands there. At best, Pilate must be thinking he's so stupid. He's just oblivious to what's going on. If he would just say the word, I would release him. Or at worst, Jesus is basically standing here in contempt of court. But Jesus says in verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Well, unclear to Pilate, Jesus is telling Pilate essentially what he told Peter the night before. As Peter pulled out a sword and Jesus told him to put it back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the plan of God. This is the will of God, that the Son of Man comes in humility to die for his people. The only reason Pilate has any authority over this decision it is because it is God who has given it to him. In a couple of months from now, a couple of months after this day, in Acts 4, Peter and John, they will be standing in Jerusalem at this nearly this exact location, and they'll pray out loud to God. They'll say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus is telling Pilate that this is what's going to happen. This is the will of God. And he's going to lay down his life, and Pilate does not have the authority to take it away. Pilate's not a robot. He will act freely in actual opposition against the kingdom of light, fighting on behalf of the world of darkness. He's not uh, constrained to only make this decision. He has free choice in this. Nevertheless, though, he's acting within the sovereign will and plan of God. And yet Jesus says that even though Pilate is guilty here, the Jews were the ones who actively delivered him over to be crucified. They rejected him first as their king with actively angry opposition, and therefore they are guilty of the greater sin. Now we've touched on this a couple of times throughout John, but even though texts like these have been used to justify all sorts of anti-Semitism throughout the centuries, there is nothing anti-Semitic here. And certainly there is nothing here to justify anti-Jewish hatred to this day. After all, Jesus is a Jew. John is a Jew. All of Jesus' disciples are Jews. All of his first converts are Jewish. The dividing line in John's gospel, and the rest of the Bible for that matter, is not between Jew and non-Jew, but of, of the world and not of the world. Of faith and disbelief. Of light and darkness. Initially, there are a lot of Jews here in this scene, in chapter 19, who are clearly of the world, who are in darkness, who are blind. But as we've seen, the Jews are the representatives of the entire world. You want to see what the world looks like in blind disbelief to Jesus? Just look to the nation of Israel. They're representative. So Jesus isn't saying that the Jews here are guilty of some greater crime that can't ever be forgiven. When Peter preaches in Jerusalem in Acts 2, he says to the Jewish people, he says, Jesus, whom you crucified and killed, and then right after he says this, 3,000 of them become Christians and are baptized. Presumably some of the ones who are yelling here today, crucify him. 
So there isn't anything anti-Semitic here, but just that the Jews should know and recognize their king, and yet they're actively rejecting him, and they hand him over to be executed. But for the moment, Pilate comes back out to tell them that he's, he's going to release Jesus. There's nothing wrong here with this man that we should kill him or that I should execute him. But then they pull out the trump card in verse 13. They say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. The irony of ironies. The Jewish people here are positioning themselves as more loyal to Caesar, as better Romans than the Roman governor. Knowing that a charge like this could mean the loss of his post, if not his life, Pilate makes one last move to talk them out of it. He brings Jesus out mockingly again, and he says, Behold your king. Seriously, guys, last time here. This weak and bloody guy is what you are so upset about. Shall I really crucify your king? Let it go. But not to be talked out of it. And then at the height of their rejection of God, they say, we have no king but Caesar. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is reminded over and over again that they have no king but God. While the kings of David are legitimate kings, they are limited kings. They are delegated kings under the high king of heaven. So by saying we have no king but Caesar, they are no, they're not only rejecting Jesus as their rightful king, like John told us in chapter 1, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But they are also rejecting God himself. And the entire hope throughout the entire Old Testament of the messianic king to come, by saying we have no king, they are saying not just now, but forever. We don't have a king. We have no king but Caesar. Rejection outright, blatant, angry rejection of God. And yet, as we've said so many times throughout the Bible when we are observing Israel's history, before we wag our fingers, before we shake our heads at Israel here, how often do we subconsciously shout the same thing? I have no king but myself. I am the master of my own life. There is no king above me, certainly not Jesus. Perhaps you're saying that tonight. Perhaps you're saying that not just subconsciously but, or implicitly, but explicitly. You're saying that about the, the trajectory of your own life. I have no other king besides myself. Definitely not some guy who died 2,000 years ago. I mean, what possible consequence or effect would this random guy in Judea 2,000 years ago have over my life today? To which I'd say we'll come back next week. If the end of Jesus' story was his crucifixion, then there would be no consequence, no effect for your life today. Thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't know, I couldn't find numbers, of, of, of people were crucified under Roman rule. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, who knows? This is just one of the many. We don't reflect on the meaning of any of their deaths. Not one, but this one. This one claimed to be God, and then three days later, he opened his eyes and he inhaled. And he stood up and he walked out of the tomb. 
He appeared to thousands of witnesses. They saw him ascend to heaven. And he says that he has authority over your life. Not just some random dude that got killed 2,000 years ago. And he says that he can forgive you of your sins. And that he can give you meaning and give you his own life through, this, through his spirit. And that if you don't receive his life, lived under his kingship and over your life, then you'll be left with nothing. You'll be left with nothing but death. You'll be left with nothing but emptiness and the anger of God against your self-lived, self-motivated life. But even for the rest of us, for the rest of us who have claimed to trust in his cross, how many times in the past 24 hours, how many times in the last four hours, the last one hour, have we subconsciously whispered to ourselves, I have no other king. I'll do this, or I'll live this way, or I'll want that, or I'll ignore what Jesus said for me here. Even perhaps for five minutes at a time, even perhaps for an hour at a time, for just an instant at a time, I'll do what I want because there's no king but me. But it's for people like that, for people like me, that Jesus has come to live and die. And it's for you that he has come to live and die, to save you from your daily and your ongoing rejection and minimizing of his kingly authority over your life. And he's done so in such a way that is completely unlike any other king in history. Not coming in power and authority, demanding your loyalty, demanding you submit to him, but in humility and in love that he might win your affection, not just your submission. He left the throne in heaven where for millennia angels had sung to him and sung about him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then he comes to his people and to the world where now no longer is anyone crying, holy, 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 but crucify him. Crucify him. And yet it's for you and for me that he comes. Behold the man upon a cross, we sang, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. He's not my king. Be gone. Get rid of him. Even for minutes at a time, he's not my king. Forgive us, Lord. Let's turn our attention now to that cross. We've seen a humble king, and now let's see a suffering king. What follows in John's account of the crucifixion is a deep conviction of his that this was the ordained and definite plan of God. It's not as though all of this happened and then after the fact, God the Father is just sitting in heaven like head in hands like, oh, what happened? And then after the fact, it dawns on him. Oh, wait, I can make some good of this situation. No, this was the eternal plan of God. Paul refers to these years under Roman rule in Galatians as the fullness of time. This is the time to which all of human history is pointing, is culminating towards, is climaxing in. And so over and over and over again, the following verses, we read John say, this was to fulfill scripture. These were not happy coincidences, but that the Father is orchestrating, that the Son is reigning, and the Spirit is fulfilling. 
And so the Romans, they take him out of the city, just like those in Israel's past who would be removed from the camp when they were unclean or under God's curse. He was raised up in between two other criminals. Criminals, the same word used for Barabbas. These are likely insurrectionists. John doesn't say that this was to fulfill this, but likely calling to mind what we heard Patrick read this evening from what Isaiah saw, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, that he was numbered among the transgressors. And Pilate has a sign written. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it's written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek, all of the languages that would have been spoken in Jerusalem. But also perhaps ironically symbolic that this is a Christ for the world. Pilate may as well have had the king of the Jews written in every language of the world. Written in Russian and in Spanish, king of the Jews in Swahili and English and in Mandarin and Hindi and in German and Arabic. Here he is, the world's king. But he hangs dying. I'm sure many or most of you have heard a sermon on the crucifixion before, but the Romans used this method to bring as much shame to bring as much pain, to bring as much suffering on the condemned as possible. No Roman citizen could be crucified apart from sedition, treason against the Caesar, because this kind of death is so particularly horrible. The hands would be tied or nailed through the wrist into the, into the wood. The feet would be, I learned this week, the feet would be turned upon themselves like this, not a nail through the top of the foot, but through the ankles to hold in the bone. The cause of death would eventually be asphyxiation as the lungs then begin to collapse upon themselves and they can no longer breathe. So this would happen quickly. So the Romans then would provide a little wedged seat, a little triangle, not for relief, but to prolong the suffering. That the crucified person would have this to support his weight as he lays, as he hangs but then can push back. This is why we see um, them want to break the legs so that there'd be no longer any support and that the lungs would collapse upon themselves. And yet this crucifixion is different. This one here is different than any other crucifixion in the history of the world, before it or after it. Not because the circumstances of this cross were different, not because the circumstances of the torture or death were different, not because the soldiers did anything unusual or unexpected as they hung him, but this was unlike any other crucifixion in the history of the world because this is the Passover lamb dying for the world in place of his people. Just as in Egypt that night, thousands of years before that those who would trust in God's promises to put themselves under the blood of the Lamb, throwing all their hope and confidence in this blood, that, death might, be, that might, death might pass over and they might be led out of their slavery. So John now makes special note of none of Jesus' bones being broken. The Passover Lamb was to be spotless without any physical defect. As the writer of Hebrews would later say in chapter 9 of his book, Moses inaugurated the first covenant with blood and with water and with hyssop, a branch to sprinkle blood that Moses used. John now takes special care to show us the new covenant being instituted by Jesus' blood and water being poured from his side. 
and then by the cruelly ironic hyssop branch offered up by the soldiers to quench Jesus' thirst with this horrible vinegar. The good and right justice of God is being poured out on this scapegoat, the lightning rod for all who would put themselves under his protection. So it's in that sense that if, if you've ever seen a, a play, a passion play, if you've ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, or any other film, cinematic, animated version of the crucifixion, it's not just not the crucifixion because someone's not actually dying, but you're just seeing a portrayal. You're, you've seen a crucifixion, but you haven't seen the crucifixion. You haven't seen redemption. You haven't seen salvation of the shepherd's sheep. You haven't seen the wrath of God being poured out and life and liberty given to any who would believe. You haven't seen my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished, you haven't seen his dying breath which brought me life. I know that it is finished, we sang. The moment of death, this moment of humility, of suffering, is the moment of highest glory and of highest praise. In all of eternity, Peter writes in 1 Peter that the angels just dared to dwell, to, to look into the kind of redemption that is happening at this moment. Of sinners being redeemed that the God of heaven would suffer and die for you and for me, would die for my weakness, would die for my rebellion against him, would die for my selfishness and my timidity and my fear and my lust and my jealousy, that this would happen. As the old gospel hymn goes, down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried. There to my sin was the blood applied. Glory to his name. I am so wondrously saved from sin. Jesus so sweetly abides within. There at the cross where he took me in. Glory to his name. O precious fountain that saves from sin. I am so glad I have entered in. There Jesus saves me and keeps me clean. Glory to his name. Come to this fountain so rich and sweet. Cast thy poor soul at the Savior's feet. Plunge in today and be made complete. Glory to his name. At this moment of death, of blood being poured out, glory to his name. Is the cross the place of greatest comfort for you? Of greatest peace for you? Do you know Jesus as your king who turns this instrument of death, this instrument of torture, and he turns it into a throne? Second century Christians, they used to love saying that he was reigning from the tree. This is incredible to think about. Jesus the king, as he hangs dying, is reigning from the tree. Reigning over you and me, reigning over eternity past and future, reigning over sin and death. And he's reigning and conquering. Do you know his comfort and care for you, even as he cares for his mother? 
his mother Mary, as he's dying on the cross, he's making sure that she's being cared for. Do you know of yourself like John does? Perhaps you weren't here in chapter 13 when we were talking about the, the disciple whom Jesus loved during when Jesus is washing their feet. This is what John calls himself as he writes this gospel account, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you know yourself like he does? That this is the most important part of your identity. The thing that describes you most. Not that you're a lawyer or a student. Not that you are a realtor or a musician. Not that you're a mother or a wife or a father or a husband. Or that you primarily first and foremost think of yourself as a single person. Or as a widowed person. But that you are someone whom Jesus loves. This is the corest part of who I am. Loved by Jesus, thought of and cared for, taken care of personally, even as he takes his final and excruciating last breaths. And as he takes his final breaths and he receives the sour wine from the soldiers, he says it is finished. Not I am, not I am finished. There's more to come, but it is finished. The work of salvation and redemption is finished. I've said this before, but this is where Jesus saved you. If, if you're a Christian and someone asks you, hey, when, when did Jesus save you? You could say, when I was, when I was young, when I was with my parents, when, when I was in college, when I was in prison, this is when Jesus saved me. But you could just as easily say he saved me 2,000 years ago at the Mount of the Skull. He went to his death in my place and he saved me. I came to faith I came to an understanding of that salvation in 1998 or whenever, but that's when it was finished, when it was done, when it was accomplished. It was finished. And then when it was finished, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He gave it up. No one took it from him. The high king of heaven, he gave it up and he died. And all of creation must have trembled not humanity. They're glad. They couldn't care less that he's dead. But the creator of all things has now died. Like the, the reality of this is just mind-blowingly astonishing that the creator of the universe can die. And he does. Which now gets us to our last scene. A buried king. These two very wealthy dudes, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who John notes, the same one who had come to Jesus by night. He's not just saying, hey, remember that guy that Jesus talked to in John chapter 3. He could have said that. He said, the one who came to Jesus by night. Now he's saying, even though the sun is setting, he's now coming to Jesus in the light. He's coming to him in light of who he is, and Joseph and Nicodemus, they prepare a royal burial. The amount of perfumes and ointments that Nicodemus brings is literally fit for a funeral and for a burial of a king, not some wandering and homeless teacher. This might as well be the funeral of David or Solomon with the amount of stuff, the kinds of ointment and myrrh and perfumes that he brings. I've been thinking of the incredible funeral scene at the end of that great movie, First Night, where the regal body of Sean Connery as Arthur is surrounded by his 
best knights, his closest friends, his widow, and they're there to honor him. Or perhaps, if you're old enough, you remember Diana's funeral in 1997, Princess Diana. I found a nearly six-hour YouTube video of the start-to-finish funeral, beginning where she is, her casket is paraded somberly with black horses throughout the streets, and then the funeral after that, the entire nation, the entire world watched this thing. Of course, though, here, the king has died. He's being prepared and buried as a king, but his closest knights, his closest friends have all scattered. They're likely disoriented, confused. The kingdom which they thought that Jesus was bringing is lost. It's over. Whatever we thought he was going to do, he didn't. They've missed out all along, both from Jesus' teaching and from the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die. That the doorway to his glory is first through his cross. And that it's the same for us as well. As Christians in our first death, as we're unified with Jesus in his death, in faith, our old self comes to die at the cross, to be crucified with him so that we are no longer under the power of sin in our lives. It's dead. The power of sin is dead. Crucified. As dead as he was. But then we're unified in our second deaths as well. Physical death is always a great enemy. It brings disorientation. It brings confusion. It brings sadness. It brings pain. But for the Christian, it is but the doorway. The doorway to glory which is to come. So just as John explicitly emphasized two births with Nicodemus in chapter 3, a physical birth and a spiritual one, perhaps we can implicitly reflect on our two deaths here as well. Two deaths, a physical and a spiritual one. And if you're not a Christian this evening, then C.S. Lewis is right. Die before you die. There is no chance after. Die to yourself before you die in your life. There's no chance after. This story doesn't end in chapter 19. John 20 is coming. And while we should never forget that, that his death means his resurrection, this story is going somewhere to his glory. It's good from time to time to just sit, to stop, to reflect, to respond to the sadness and the darkness of his death. Friday night, all of Saturday must have been long and dark days for his disciples. And those days and nights are perhaps no greater reflection of the lives that we live in today. Our lives are suspended between two worlds, between two times, between the world of death and darkness and between the world of glory and resurrection. And here's where we hang, hang in the balance, just waiting. We wait. Yes, resurrection Sunday has happened. It's in the past. It's true that our lives as Christians make no sense apart from the empty tomb. We wait, though. We wait for the morning. We wait for the morning of Jesus' return, of our own future resurrection, understanding that this world is not all we live for, understanding that the world we live in is not finished is not final, that this is not the way that God created it, that this is not the way that God wants it. There is still death and sadness which he will conquer. 
that Jesus is coming. Sunday is coming. The day of resurrection is coming. And so as you struggle this week, as you struggle in doubt or weakness, as you struggle in sin or disbelief, as you struggle in anger or frustration, bent desires or lust, as you struggle in sadness or anxiety or depression, remember two things. Remember two things this week. One, it is finished. Go read what Patrick read as the assurance of pardon this evening from Galatians 2. Know Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. This changes the way that we struggle. Changes the way that we wait. But then remind yourself also that Sunday's coming. It will not always be this way. This is not the life that God has for you for eternity. He will win. He has freed me from the penalty of sin. He has freed me from the power of sin in my life. But one day in my resurrection with his, he will finally and fully free me from the presence of sin altogether. Glory be to his name. Jesus' death means our life. Next week, his resurrection means our life for eternity. But I think it'd be good this week, just as we do around Easter weekend, to take some time this week. Take some time like we do on Good Friday, on that holy Saturday, on that Saturday of silence, of just waiting, of being suspended between two worlds. To this week, reflect. Reflect on what's happened, what Jesus has done, his finished work of redemption on your behalf, but it is not done yet. His final and full work is yet to culminate in his return for you to bring your resurrection life with him for eternity. Glory be to his name. Let's pray. Triune God. We confess that we do not understand, that we minimize, that we do not fully comprehend the work of the Son on the cross. That you, Father, would pour out your wrath against our sin fully and finally on him. That the work of the Spirit would bring him to life in his resurrection. Lord, help us. Help us, we pray. Help us to, out of love, out of affection, out of worship, help us worship him as our king. Lift our eyes, lift our affections, lift our hearts so that we might no longer say we have no king but ourselves, but we have no king but Jesus. Help us. Father, we pray even tonight, for some who have never given him their submission, their love, their worship, that you might move in their hearts, that you might bring life, that you might convict, that you might fill them with your spirit because of the great love of Christ on their behalf. 
Father, draw, woo to yourselves, or to yourself, all of us here. Increase our love for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.